Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I'm delighted to welcome Chris Grenzik to the show. Uh, thank you for taking time, uh, Chris. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, bud. Thank you. Uh, so Chris is with uh, Toro Real Estate Partners. Uh, he, along with his uh, other co-fellow members, uh, they handle several multifamily assets, uh, just about more than 4,000 units, uh, touching 300 million now. Uh, so they are into several states and, you know, we will kind of slowly peel back uh, his story and uh, their company's uh, sort of the operating memorandum and kind of see what takes them and how they achieve value uh, and, you know, sort of give in, uh, investor returns and things like that. So with that, uh, Chris, uh, give us some background as to how you got started and how you kind of uh, turned your uh, attention into multifamily. Yeah, for sure. So I'm born and raised in Long Island. Um, hmm. Where I typically like to start it is I went to college at Hofstra University hmm. on Long Island from 2010 to 2014. Hmm. I played Division One soccer there and like many student athletes didn't really have anything lined up to go into afterwards. Um, sure. hmm. So fell into coaching. I got lucky. Friend hooked me up with the Division Two coaching role up in Massachusetts. Hmm. I spent a year there. Um, really enjoyed the college coaching aspect. However, I found myself missing home a lot. And in order to move up in the coaching world, you basically have to be able or willing to move wherever, whenever uh, to different programs, different schools. Sure. And mm. I just realized five, 10 years down the road, I didn't think it was for me. So came back to Long Island, got another coaching job, but instead of just doing coaching, I got a second job as a cold caller for a stock brokerage company uh, in Long Island, small company, and started doing that, making four, five, 600 calls a day and earning to get my license as well. Uh, eventually got licensed, but started to realize that the, the culture and values either for that company or in the industry just didn't sit right with me. So mm -hmm. to started, decided to start to look for something to get out. Um, as luck would have it, my mom and my cousin decided to buy a single family flipping course in January, 2016 and mm -hmm. dragged me along to the weekend seminar. And that was my first intro into it. Um, hmm. You know, before that, I had done literally nothing. Um, mm -hmm. The example I like to give is at that time, and I learned that weekend that asbestos is not a type of mold. Um, I thought that's what it was. So um, started to learn very quickly, you know, the next couple months, nights, weekends, learning from the program, learning from the coach that came with the program, as well as my mom and my cousin who had more experience than I did. And then we spent the next several months failing to flip a single home. Um, didn't sure. buy one didn't put one under contract, did nothing with it. Um, mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time, energy, and money trying to do so and failed. And the reason we failed, the number one reason was basically just a lack of execution. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we did not take the systems and processes that they had given us and adapted it to our area. Um, however, the program we bought into was set up more for an area that was not so high cost, not as high property taxes, not as high values, not as high labor costs, all your holding costs were much higher. Um, mm -hmm. However, like I said, we could have taken those systems processes that, it, that they had put time and energy into developing and adapted it to our area. Um, and another reason we decided not to continue going down was we felt the margins were very thin in New York. We felt the competition was incredibly high. Sure. And as we were networking and getting into the real estate world, we started learning that a lot of people did things out of their area and out of state. Mm -hmm. So we started exploring that avenue. And what we decided to do was try to partner up with somebody that was already doing it to get some experience, understand how they did it because going out of our area was, you know, an unknown, unknown to us. And there's some beer sure. involved with that. So mm -hmm. we decided to, we tried to joint venture on like the flipping side, couldn't find anybody. So what we decided to do was become a hard money lender for a flip with someone who we thought was experienced and mm -hmm. try to get our foot in the door that way. 
mm-hmm. lent money to uh, a guy named Brian who mm-hmm. wasn't as experienced as we thought, mm-hmm. but we did okay. He may have not done okay, learned a little bit, but what it did do was he introduced us to his cousin, uh, John Cohen, who's one of the owners at Toro where I work now. Mm-hmm. And we met him, um, started talking and we had just started learning about the multifamily world mm-hmm. and he had basically transitioned into it. So at first he was going to teach us how to buy taxi properties at auction down in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We tried that one weekend, me and my cousin drove down, drove 50, 60, 70 properties and just hated it instantly. Um, it was very, very rough stuff and not sure. so great areas. And it just mm-hmm. didn't sit with what we were trying to do. I started learning about multifamily and said, Hey, you've got this deal. You've got an eight unit. You're trying to raise money for, let us invest a little bit of money with you. We'll help you get the deal done. Let us just pick your brain. You know, once a week, let's jump on a call, grab coffee every other week, whatever it was. I forget at this point. Mm-hmm. He said, sure. So invested in that just as an, an LP passive investor. Mm-hmm. Um, started talking to him and we just kept saying like, Hey, we want to get into this. We want to do it. We really like this. Mm-hmm. This fits with what we're trying to do. We feel more confident in this and just how can we help you? So what we did was we helped him start and run a meetup. Uh, we did that for about three and a half years, mm-hmm. um, until kind of COVID hit and we've taken a step back from it. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and then we joint ventured on another hundred units. So we did, uh, 17 units across three properties in mm-hmm. the same area as that first deal that we invested in passively. So Covington, Kentucky, it's right across mm-hmm. the river from Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And we joined ventured on an 82 unit down in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. And we were actually going to join venture on another 86 unit down in Jacksonville, Florida. However, once we got into due diligence, we decided to walk away from that deal. Um, sure. But right around the time as we closed that 17 unit in Kentucky, mm-hmm. I was ready to quit my job. I was still working as a stockbroker. Um, mm-hmm. I thoroughly hated it at that point. I was doing anything and everything I can to spend as little time there as possible. And I was about ready to quit with nothing else lined up. Uh, and as luck would have it, just sitting down with John one day and just talking to him, funny coincidence, he had worked for the same exact people just at a different company five or six years prior. And Interesting. just happened to come up in the conversation and we were just talking and, you know, it was still somewhat early on in the relationship, mm-hmm. um, but just starting to get to know each other. And I just said, yeah, I'm just going to quit. You know, maybe I'll try to do this real estate stuff full time. And he just said, well, why don't you come work for me and my partner? Um, you know, we'll do it as a trial basis, see if it works out mm-hmm. and we'll see how it goes. Um, so that was August, 2016, quit my job the next day, moved over there. Um, and it's been four years since. And now I basically quasi run the Florida region of our portfolio. Um, Mm -hmm. and Toro has acquired, like you said, 4,000 units, a little under $300 million worth of properties. Um, you know, we have sold some, so right now we have somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 units under management. Um, but yeah, we invest in the Southeast and the Midwest U S uh, we purchase existing multifamily properties, either stable cash flowing with some value add or, or, you know, as low down as some very, distressed opportunistic stuff. So um, we kind of go up and down that spectrum. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you for all that detail. I think for viewers and listeners, they should definitely rewind the (laughs) intro part of this because uh, hearing you, it is so evident some of the lessons that we can unravel out of it. I think the amount of action that you have taken is uh, incredibly, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, inspiring for sure. Like, you know, willing to drive down, willing to go any path. And one of the, I think, uh, things that I would definitely like to point out is that it is very evident for as successful, uh, you know, folks in such a short time as you are, Chris, is that you're willing to sort of knock on those doors and ask questions. It's really that resourcefulness. I say that all the time is that go talk to people, ask, Hey, do you know somebody? And, you know, sort of open those unlocked doors and what have you. And I'm sure you would have found that people are willing to help or refer things like that. Uh, Would you agree that when you start asking questions more and more uh, people are willing to help or perhaps give you references and things like that? Yeah, I think one of the great things about the real estate community, uh, especially online, is there's very much an abundance mindset. So everybody understands that if I help you, you're not stealing from me. Sure, I'm going to help us all grow. And I know if I help you, one day it's going to come back to me and it might even come back two, five, tenfold. So I think that's one of the great things that I've learned. And not everybody's like that, but for the most part, you can very easily find people, um, 
not just in general, but people in your market doing similar things as you and are willing to help in one way or another. And as long as you don't ask too much of them um, or, you know, you don't just take and not give, um, you know, you can form some really good relationships with people that will last many, many years, if not decades. And, you know, you'll continue to help people. And sometimes, hey, I mean, I may need a little bit more from you today, but in two, three years, you need a little bit more from me. And I think a lot of people have that mindset, which is great. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's always an area where someone else is stronger and perhaps you have some more knowledge in it and that exchange happens. As long as I think, as you pointed out, you have a sort of a giver mindset. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It always comes back. I, I totally agree with you. And I have several examples of that in my own personal life as well. So couldn't agree more. So now help us uh, understand, Chris, that, um, you know, let's talk about markets in general. Like, you know, what you look for, what's important. Uh, and, you know, we can maybe perhaps delve into other aspects as well. So what is your philosophy about, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you said you definitely like Florida in a prior discussion, you mentioned you were in Cincinnati, Kentucky, uh, you were in Carolinas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you maybe uh, kind of distill down in terms of what is your approach towards uh, various markets? Yeah, I think one thing to note before I say what we look for is that Mm -hmm. when choosing a market, you have to almost reverse engineer and understand what are you looking to accomplish and then find the markets that fit that. We look Mm -hmm. for areas that have good potential appreciation as well as good cash flow. If we were just looking for appreciation, we probably wouldn't be in the markets we're in. We'd probably be in more primary markets like New York, Boston, Chicago, et cetera. Sure. We were looking for very heavy cash flow markets. We would probably be in smaller tertiary markets where you can get a little bit of a higher cap rate, a little bit better price per unit, uh, things like that. However, for us, like I said, when we started out and when Toro started out, we were looking for areas that could provide cash flow as well as have some good appreciation that we could force through different renovations, upgrades, enhancements, operational efficiencies, things like that, that we could come Mm -hmm. in and improve and then have that extra value when and if we decide to sell. Um, So for that reasons, we look for markets that are growing, that people are moving to and have really good healthy ratios of supply and demand. So we look for population growth. We look for job growth. Mm -hmm. Before COVID, we looked for low unemployment and trending down unemployment. Mm -hmm. Um, We looked for pro-business states, We looked for landlord-friendly states. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also looked very heavily at the number of new housing units coming online Mm -hmm. compared to people coming there. Um, Because for us, one of the pillars of multifamily is supply and demand. If you have not enough demand to meet your supply, that is going to be a weaker market than something that has less supply and way more demand. So for that, we want areas that have more people moving into the area Mm -hmm. than new units are being built Mm -hmm. because just by law of supply and demand, you do not Mm -hmm. have enough of that supply. Your demand is going to push rental prices up. It's going to push appreciation up. It's going to push your cap rates down. Mm -hmm. It's going to push your demand for properties in that area up. And it should just all benefit you in the long run. Um, So those are areas we tend to look for. And some are more appreciation heavy than others. Um, So some of our areas in Florida where a ton of people are moving to compared to some of our areas in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. like Indianapolis are not as appreciation driven. Mm -hmm. Um, We just like to mix it up and have those different options. Sure, sure. And thank you for clarifying that, Chris, in a, in a manner that you broke it down, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, what are cash flowing states, what are sort of the hybrid between cash flow and appreciation. Now, speaking of, let's say your uh, sort of that value add and organic rent growth strategy that we talk about, right? Um, mm-hmm. How important or how much of an emphasis you give for uh, sort of that organic rent growth that will occur. And where I'm going with that question, uh, Chris, is that as investors are going into, let's say the Charlotte, the Raleigh, or perhaps the Tampa, the Jacksonville, all these markets, right? Uh, I think it's always written that, yes, there is more and more people moving, uh, you know, down south into warmer climates and things like that. So obviously the prices are competitive, you know, 
achieving the desired cash flow is is absolutely comparative if not minimal at best right so you are uh, as a sponsor you are having to you know kind of rely on some of the best case scenarios whether it's bad debt concessions things like that and you are kind of almost forced to say that hey looking at the next horizon right uh, of let's say two three years the uh, rents are going to be much higher and higher. How much emphasis do you give? And, and, and also, if you can, you know, maybe perhaps uh, talk about uh, what is your mindset about, uh, you know, like since these, all these prices are, uh, you know, getting higher and higher, uh, how do you think about sort of the, from a risk profile perspective as well? Yeah, so I think it's tough. I think we tend to be, less of a buyer of the organic rent growth side than a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. It's why a lot of the deals that we buy are a little bit more distressed and opportunistic because mm -hmm. we don't have to rely as much on rental rates growing at four or 5%. Like some people will put down, especially in some of the markets you mentioned, sure. um, mm -hmm. you know, Tampa, Orlando, some markets in Texas, some markets in the Carolinas. We feel that is too aggressive despite what research there is and they could be right for us though it just doesn't feel comfortable it feels too excessive sure, um, sure. we also sometimes know you hope uh, and sorry to interject i mean sometimes yeah. you you hope and you're pleasantly surprised that yes you have a uh, three four five percent rent growth and um, mm -hmm. but uh, i think from an approach perspective i think it's better to be conservative and go with a very conservative model but, but go ahead with your thought mm -hmm. yeah um and one of the things we also are concerned about too is development is a lagging indicator of a market. Mm -hmm. So when a market is strong, that's when developers come in in waves mm -hmm. and say, hey, we want to develop. And then it takes 18, 24, 36 months and you start to see a large supply coming through the pipeline of new development. Mm -hmm. When that happens, you start to see rent growth slowing. Um, so when people, especially brokers, unfortunately, mm -hmm. you talk to them and tell you, you know, look at the rent growth the last six months, the last 12 months, look at the projections. For me, that's, hey, if it's already happened, we're pro we probably missed the boat and maybe we can catch the tail end, mm -hmm. but that's not going to last forever because other people are going to see this, especially developers, mm -hmm. and try to capitalize on this. So for me, from what I've seen in the last couple of years, and again, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I've been doing this for three, four years, give or take, depending upon how you want to look at it. Sure. Mm -hmm. I have not seen a sustained period of that type of rent growth. I believe the national average is around 3%. Mm -hmm. um, so that's mm -hmm. where we tend to feel more comfortable depending upon the market. Um, some markets were a little bit lower. Um, typically, we don't go over that amount. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just where we feel comfortable doing it. Um, so that's why a lot of deals we get beat out on, we get priced out on because we're just not willing to do that. Um, so that's why a lot of our deal flow has come from, you know, off market, different sources, you know, so we've bought probably our last six, seven deals have been off market to one degree or another. It's very rare that you get a deal where you're the only person looking at it. However, sure. when it's on market, it's just a significantly smaller pool. Um, but we've bought a couple deals from managers, you know, putting us in contact with other owners. Mm -hmm. um, we've actually bought two smaller deals that were wholesaled to us. Mm -hmm. um, we bought one deal from a lender, I believe. So we've been put in contact with deal flow in some alternative ways. But as I said, that's also why we've gone towards some more of those other types of deals where, you know, it's not a 90% occupied deal. You're just coming in and doing interiors. You, know, you got bigger problems you got to solve as well. Sure, sure. Now, now, now let's just break this down. I think I, I love your sort of concrete answers uh, there, Chris, where you are laying out the framework and then, you know, different uh, variations around it. Now talking about new construction and sort of the new supply coming in mm -hmm. the sub-market, right? How do you sort of go about looking at it? And, and I want to clarify that, Chris, by saying that, are you kind of saying that, hey, the demand or the population in that sub-market is, uh, uh, let's say, 6,000 or 10,000, uh, and the new supply that's coming in is perhaps, let's say, 500 units. So that's like a some percentage of that uh, demand there. How, how, what are some of the metrics that, uh, that you look at, like when you're evaluating some of this? 
Yeah. So for us, we're typically not buying in some markets where there is new construction. Mm-hmm. We tend to buy mostly C properties and some B properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not very rarely are we directly competing with mm-hmm. new supply. Sure. Um, however, what happens is new supply has a trickle down effect to the rest of the market. Sure. If there's a ton of new units online and it softens rents or they're offering high concessions, you're going to have people move from the, bro- the property that's a year or two older and go into the newer stuff and so on and so forth. You're going to have people being able to, you know, quote unquote, move up as sure. it were. Sure, or, sure, sure. You know, hmm. What'll just naturally happen is rents will slow down or they will soften or flatten. Um, in rare cases, you actually see them dip a little bit if you have a high amount of oversupply. I believe we saw that happen in Houston around 2015. Um, so there is potential for that. Um, mm-hmm. but typically that hasn't happened because there's a national shortage. So it hasn't quite hit that. But that's kind of how we just look at it as how is this going to trickle down and affect a lot of our other properties mm-hmm. and just try to do the best we can. So it's a little bit less um nailed down and a little bit more of like a, a feeling and, and sure, art, sure. if I were to say. Um, and a little bit tougher to give a concrete answer because it's not like, hey, sure, sure. direct competitor is being built a quarter of a mile down the road. Sure, sure. And I totally agree with you. There's, there's sort of a rhyme or rhythm or perhaps art and a science to some of these things you're saying that, hey, I'm seeing some of this new supply coming up, perhaps maybe next 18 to 24 months, it could you know, perhaps uh, negatively impact or perhaps slow down uh, some of the rent growth that we think uh, you know, uh, we are projecting. And hence, maybe the, the, those, uh, those markets do not pan out. Now, mm-hmm. speaking of your uh, experience, uh, Chris, about let's say the C-class properties or the B-class properties, uh, could you maybe describe that uh, when you are doing all the renovations, let's say the exterior, the interior, and things like that, right? Uh, is that a sure shot uh, recipe to re- achieve the rent bumps that you typically? Uh, how how assured are you uh, in, in the sort of the C class uh, uh, space doing you know major renovations? So I think I'm going to answer your question, but I might frame it up a little bit differently. Sure, when sure. we look at a property mm-hmm. and we try to understand what we can do with the property and what rents we can take it to, mm-hmm. it's basically looking at your comps around you. And your sure. best comp is going to be if you had the exact same property as the one you're buying next door to you and it's doing the renovation you want to do with everything being exactly the same, that mm-hmm. would obviously be your best comp. Sure. However, that never ever happens except maybe if you're in a very dense urban environment mm-hmm. you're buying like row houses in philly or six units in brooklyn then maybe you can have that happen um so what we do is we just try to find the best comps we can that are doing similar work mm-hmm. however again it's a little bit of a blend a little bit of an art a little sure. bit of quite honestly guesswork mm-hmm. because you're never going to have the same style property mm-hmm. it's not going to be on the same block it's not going to be the same renovation style. It's not going to be the same floor plan. It's not going to have the same feeling. Sure. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Mm-hmm. And all you do is you say, hey, what do we think is the high end? What do we think is the low end? And then what do we think we can hit? And we just mm-hmm. look at those different scenarios and we just have to be comfortable with them mm-hmm. and kind of basically assign a, a likelihood of each scenario. And as long as we don't feel that the risk is disproportionate to the reward, Mm-hmm. we feel confident with that. So when we put down a rent, it's funny, I was having this conversation with someone else. Mm-hmm. If I think we can take rents from 700 to 850, mm-hmm. I would say nine times out of 10, our rent does not go to 850. It sure. might go to 835. It might go to 865. It might go to 852. It might go to 855. So you're just trying to get as close as you can to mm-hmm. make it work. Mm-hmm. And once you take over, a lot of times... I don't want to say you take your business plan and throw it out the window, mm-hmm. but you've got to modify it as you go because you're never going to be right. You know, you're going to sure. put $5,000 for an electric cost. It's never going to be exactly $5,000. So you're either going to be slightly under, slightly over, very under, very over, mm-hmm. and you've got to adjust. So a lot of times what will happen is we're just trying to get close. Um, and then oftentimes what happens is, is the net number for our expenses or our net number for our rent is close enough that it makes sense and will work. And mm-hmm. then sometimes we're wrong too, to the sure. low end and the high end, and we've got to adjust and make things work. 
Sure, sure. And, and sometimes, you know, as you rightfully said, I think the unexpected also pop ups, right? Uh, so uh, also, Chris, uh, some of the elements about, you know, let's say the C-class properties is, is obviously the dated uh, nature of everything, right? So uh, is your group concerned about like, let's say the hidden electrical wires or perhaps the sewer lines or some plumbing might be galvanized or not really copper or PVC? How, how much is that uh, a play into your underwriting? Is that something you kind of factor in going in or is that not at all that much of a big deal. Oh, it's huge. Um, anytime I get on the phone with a broker, because typically that's who we deal with or sure. whoever brought the deal to us, it's very rare. We're talking to the owner directly. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, several questions I'm going to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of them is what's the pricing? Mm -hmm. Why are they selling? Um, you know, what's the story? And then the next questions I'm going to ask is about all the physical aspects of the property. Mm -hmm. How old are the roofs? How old is the plumbing? What type of plumbing is it? What type of electrical is it? Mm -hmm. um, what do the, you know, what are the electrical panels? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is the framing? Um, how old are ACs? How often are they being changed? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to find out what work they've done. The sure. more institutional professional groups, they'll have a list of all the work they've done that they've owned the property. And they'll say, Hey, we spent 2 million bucks on, you know, these 50 items mm -hmm. across these five years, and you can just look through it and figure it out. Sure. Um, however, when you start buying from more unsophisticated, more mom and pop, um, or some of these, you know, opportunistic deals, you've got to try to figure it out yourself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes going into that first offer, you have an idea and you put placeholder numbers in there for what mm -hmm. you think is the problem um, or what might come up. Mm -hmm. um, and then until you put it under contract and you really get out there with your inspectors, your contractors, your vendors, mm -hmm. your all your professional team, and you really get in there, walk the property and do your proper due diligence, mm -hmm. you're not going to really know. And even then, you may not even know. We've had problems with things uh we've had properties with things that have come up 6 sure. 12, 18 24 months after we've bought the property we've had things come up the day after we bought the property so sure sure when sure. you buy these older properties mm -hmm. if you do not have the expectation that mm -hmm. things are going to break and things are going to need repairs and things are going to be replaced while you own this property you should not be buying a property that is older you should probably be buying stuff that's built 2000s and newer, 2010 sure. and newer, and then sure. depending upon how long you own it. So we are very cognizant and it's a question we always ask um, upfront and try to get as much information as we can. Mm -hmm. And then whatever anybody tells us, we always expect it to be worse because it's very rare that someone is exaggerating that it is worse than it actually is. Typically, they're trying to downplay the problems with the property. So I, I agree don't, don't be fooled by anybody. I agree with you there. And just a little bit about myself, Chris, there is that we, we own a lot more vintage properties from 30s, 40s and 50s. And, mm -hmm. and I've, uh, you know, done my share of, uh, you know, completely vacant distress renovations. So now when things come up, it doesn't, you know, really bother me. And that's why I was asking that question is that invariably, uh, you know, owning C-class properties, you are going to get like, hey, some of the sewer pipe is bust or some of the outlets don't work and you may have to replace some wires and things like that. So that whole uh, situation about expect the unexpected and have the sort of that thick skin to kind of push through it and do it you know it requires several things i should say you know like not only your management your resources as far as you know which are the contractors the technicians going out and understanding what it takes and things like that so could you maybe talk about like maybe some of these type of experiences where uh, you had like completely oh shoot we did not really budget for it or plan for it but you kind of went through it what were a couple of if you could give a couple of those ex examples because a lot of times i feel that on the podcast the b class space or the b assets get talked about a whole lot oh we want to purchase the built 1990 or newer or 2000 or up but as you and i both know that 
a ton of our U.S. Uh, housing stock is literally built in, gosh, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, 60s, 70s in apartments uh, seem pretty common. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we can imagine, all these housing stock that we are talking about is coming to an age that's, you know, a lot of things need replacement. And they can be done. It's not terribly difficult or anything. It's just a matter of, you know, knowing the right resources, having the budget and getting these things done. So could you talk some of your sort of your sour experiences uh, and how you kind of push through it and what was sort of the, describe some of the nature of horror, if I may. Yeah. So definitely can do a couple, got more than a couple. So if you wanted to <laughs> sure. do a podcast just on that, we could. Sure. Um, you know, one thing I'll say first very quickly is that's why I find um, it's been very tough for us to buy older C-class properties that are on the market listed and being blasted out because the cap rates or the values feel very similar to something that you would buy for 80s, 90s, 2000s built Probably. stuff. Sure. It's actually mm -hmm. why I've seen in the last two years, a lot of people that traditionally did buy C-class stuff Move to moving up a little bit because they said, why am I going to buy something for the same cap rate and spend way more time managing this and fixing problems when I can buy something for the same cap rate with a little bit less upside, but what they feel is way less risk and just have a nicer, newer product. Um, so that's why I understand. And that's why I shake my head when some of these properties are listed. I'm like, who is buying this and how are they doing it? Because, sure. you know, again, just quickly before I answer your question, sure, sure. one of the biggest problems I see when other people do it um, is there's always a line item in your expenses for capital reserves. Mm -hmm. And it's basically saying, we don't know what's going to come up, but something's going to come up and we're going to have to pay for it. So sure. here's our oh shit budget, basically. Sure, sure. And mm -hmm. I find many people, you know, the standard number people throw out there is 250 to $300 per unit on your larger, medium-sized properties. Sure. If you don't have a very large capital budget upfront, or a lot of these problems have not been replaced and fixed already, mm -hmm. you are not operating that property for sure. 250 to $300 a unit. It's just not possible. I mean, I, you're I, not properly fixing problems. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I was just looking at a deal in Orlando, like 330 units. And just from the operating memorandum, you could tell that, that the, all the roofs need replacement and you cannot like budget that kind of an item just, just like that by a simple, uh, you know, one liner item on your, uh, you know, sort of on, a, on your underwriting. That's just not possible, but, but go ahead with your thoughts. It's funny. I know, I know what deal you're talking about and I completely agree. So, um, but be that as it may. Yeah. So um, a recent one that we had, we bought a 320 unit property down in Jacksonville last year, um, mm -hmm. long-term ownership. Um, mm -hmm. We were under contract for several months. It got extended for a couple of reasons. And when we took over that property, it was heading into the summer months mm -hmm. and we did not get a termite inspection during due diligence because mm -hmm. there was a termite bond on the property. Um, mm -hmm. So we thought no need to pay for an inspection there's a bond. Mm. If there's any problems with termites, it's covered. Sure. Lo and behold, the contract that it had did not cover a certain type of termite. That oh certain type God. of termite only comes out during the summer. So as we headed into the summer months, we had five out of nine buildings show signs of these termites. We started doing research. Um, we didn't want to move people in because we didn't know exactly what was going on. Our manager who's born and raised in Jacksonville manages 3,500 units has managed there for 10 years. She had never seen this before. So this was new for all of us. We were like, sure. you know, what is going on? It took us a couple weeks, several weeks to finally figure out what mm -hmm. this termite is and what's going on. It only comes out for summer. Um, so because we weren't moving people in our occupancy continued to drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. And eventually we just said, it doesn't matter. We've got to solve this problem. Got someone in there, found out we had to fumigate five of the nine buildings. Um, we could only do two per week. So it was going to take us, was it three weeks? Mm -hmm. um, so by the time we finished and could start moving people in, you know, it had been more than two months and we were into the low 80s percent occupied and we had to spend $115,000 that we had not budgeted for. Wow. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we had some contingency. We had a couple things that we could scrap. We worked with our lender to move some money around and we were able to make it work. 
Um, mm -hmm. However, we did have to scrap a couple things we were looking to do. We are going to renovate slightly less units um, unless we decide to do some from cash flow. Mm -hmm. um, but we're able to make it work. I don't think by and large is going to affect our overall business plan, except for those months where mm -hmm. we weren't as occupied as we thought. Mm -hmm. um, because eventually we do plan on selling the property in another couple of years, pending COVID, we might refinance and hold a little bit longer um, sure. if this continues. Mm -hmm. But we think our value is still there. If we have a few less units, we don't think it's going to largely affect the sale price. We don't think it's going to largely affect our cash flow. So is it as good as we thought it could be? On paper, probably not. But in reality, we have no idea what would have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. I do still think that project will be profitable and a success to what degree it will be a success is yet to be determined by a number of factors. Um, sure. mm -hmm. But that was one we had to come in and solve a problem. I mean, it was literally like within a week we started seeing them and we were like, we started getting calls from residents. We we're like, what the heck is going on? We have a bond called the bond. They went out, inspected. We don't cover that. What are you talking about? And it was like, you know, shame on us for not reading the contract closely enough Shame on us for not getting the inspection despite having the bond. Shame on us for not moving quick enough to get those buildings fumigated. Mm -hmm. um, however, it was just something we had never experienced before. Sure. It was something we didn't know about. It was something our manager did not know about despite her extensive experience in the area. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, is it our fault? Yes. Do I think it's something we realistically should have changed doing it? In mm -hmm. hindsight, yes, with the knowledge we had at the time, I don't think we made a mistake. I think it was something we had to experience. And it's quite possible it's something I'll never experience again. Um, however, I will be getting a termite inspection every time I buy a property going forward um, because, you know, one mistake is a mistake, you know, two mistakes is a problem. Um, sure, or the same sure. mistake again is a problem. Sure. So sure. that one was a, that was a fun one to deal with. Sure, um, sure. A any other experiences, maybe perhaps bed bugs, fire, or any sort of underground sewer issues? Things um, like that? We did just have a fire at one of our properties, um, mm -hmm. another one in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, oh God. Um, but there's something about you guys in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the Florida properties a lot better because that's what I'm responsible for. So my recollection of them is significantly higher. So it's not our Florida, it's not, you know, it's not like our Florida properties are the only ones having problems and I suck at my job. It's just, those are the ones that come to mind much quicker. Um, we had, I'm trying to remember if it was a candle or a stove. We had one fire. We, we had two fires, one that barely did any damage, one that did some significant damage. Mm -hmm. um, so I forget which one this was, but um, we had four units affected. We had to transfer uh, three people. One person decided to move out um, mm -hmm. and we just, you know, waive their termination fee. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going through that process right now. Um, luckily, we have money to renovate units as well. Sure. Luckily, our insurance is going to cover it. Um, but we've had four units out of 128 offline for the last six or seven weeks, maybe even eight weeks now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we should have business income loss. So those things aren't so scary. You know, it's concrete block construction. So it's not like we have wood frame where it's like a tinderbox and it lights sure. up mm -hmm. everything just yep. know, goes into mm -hmm. one big ball, mm -hmm. um, which is why we like the concrete block construction, especially in Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were, you know, thankful for that part. Um, you know, but it is, you know, it's hurting our current, um, ability to, you know, obviously rent units and during COVID obviously doesn't help with everything going on. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things have been a little bit of slower because mm -hmm. supply lines aren't as active as they were pre COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we had some issues with construction workers not wanting to go into units for mm -hmm. several months or a couple months. Um, so we're getting there, we're going through the process, we're working through insurance. So those things aren't as scary and you have, you should have systems and things in place to account for that. Sure. Um, whereas like the termite stuff was, you know, we, you know, that's not insurance isn't going to cover that. That's on us. So sure. Sure. Now let's talk about, uh, property management, uh, mm -hmm. Chris, right. Uh, what is your model? Are you typically like when you purchase, are you, uh, closely evaluating who the property managers are and you kind of tend to keep them or you pretty much blanket replace them and have a new management come in that you are, you are familiar with and they do a good job and things like that. Well, what is sort of your approach towards it? 
Yes. Yeah, so we use third-party management on all of our properties. We don't have management in-house. Um, we have a couple different companies depending upon the location. We don't use national companies uh, just for personal reasons. We tend to like a smaller company that we feel we are more valued. We have better access. We just think we're treated a little bit better. We pay for it, but we think it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's two things you need to distinguish when you talk about keeping management or not. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the corporate management office and then there is the on-site staff. And mm-hmm. even though the on-site staff technically works for the corporate office, mm-hmm. they also work for the property. Sure. So when we're buying a property that our manager is not currently managing, we are replacing the corporate management company. Um, however, mm-hmm. if the current on-site staff is willing, we will look at the opportunity to hire them if, they, if we think they do a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the property we just bought down in Jacksonville, uh, it was mm-hmm. 117 units. Mm-hmm. Um, we kept all the on-site staff. It was one manager and two maintenance guys. Two maintenance guys have been there for 10 and 18 years. Mm-hmm. The on-site manager had been there for five years. We felt they were doing a phenomenal job and we sure. felt we could not do better. The current owner, it was the last property they owned there. It was in-house management. So it's mm-hmm. not like they could go to another property with that management mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. They were either going to stay there and work for our management company and us, or mm-hmm. they were going to have to go out and find a new job. So that made a lot of sense. Other properties that doesn't always happen. Um, once in a while we buy a property where our manager is already managing that tends to make it fairly easy unless we want to make an on-site change. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically we don't because they would have already done it. Mm-hmm. So we will look at those two things separately. So corporate management, we always bring our own people in, mm-hmm. um, the on-site we will, give them the opportunity to stay if they would like to. However, mm-hmm. they obviously can decide to leave when the property sells if they want. Sure. Now, uh, thank you for that detail, by the way. And the fact that you said about the technicians and all that, I mean, it's so valuable because, I mean, these are the guys who literally know the doors, the keys, the knobs, and, you know, what not to do at the property. I mean, and and if you, and in fact, actually, it's it's a great opportunity to, in fact, I would say the reverse is that, if you get some of these technicians like that on property, boy, they are absolute mm-hmm. gold because they know inside outs of every wall, every toilet, and everything that you can imagine uh, in that on that asset, I should say. Now, yeah. let, let's talk a little deeper about that property management aspect, Chris, is that let's say you have a, a slightly low performance property, right? Uh, how do you sort of piecemeal about whether that's a on-site management issue, uh, you know, whether it's the culture, it's the people, things like that or is it something has to do with like let's say the submarket is uh, not great enough or perhaps it's the property's deferred maintenance uh, that's not uh, you know allowing the property to perform as such so could you maybe share some thoughts about how you kind of uh, approach or sort of dissect into some of these issues and say that hey these faults are really attributed to you know the staff that's there so we gotta replace that could you maybe share some touch points around what is your thinking around some of these things? Yes. Um, I, I, I am definitely going to answer that. I love that question. I do want to touch on one thing that you had just said about the technicians. Sure. Um, keeping a technician or a maintenance person is hugely beneficial. If you can keep them and they do good work, definitely. Um, with the managers, though, the on-site leasing and managers, it's slightly different, especially sure. if they've been there a long time. Um, if you're looking to come into a property and make changes, you're looking to raise rents, you're looking to make improvements, they may be so stuck in the old way that sure. they may not believe in the new vision. So you have to be careful when you retain that on-site manager to make sure that, hey, they're not going to you know, undermine what you're looking to do. Um, and it's not easy. Um, sure, sure. It's, it's tough to really know whether they believe it or not. You know, They're trying to keep their job if they want to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we like to do is we like to question when we are touring before we even offer, mm-hmm. we like to question both the head of the onsite management and the head maintenance person, mm-hmm. not only to get an idea of what the property is like before we offer, but we're also pre-screening them before we are the new owner to see what they think about the company. So mm-hmm. we'll ask them, Hey, where do you think the opportunity is? What do you think about raising rents? What do you think about the current tenants? What do you think about renovating units to this level? And mm-hmm. we then 
take that and try to remember how they reacted. Mm -hmm. We'll then interview them while we're in the process of taking over. Um, mm -hmm. and we'll see, you know, how those two answers match up and kind of feed into each other. So it's just one caveat I wanted to throw in there. Sure. Sure. Maintenance people, I would almost always keep assuming you think they do a good job. Mm -hmm. The onsite management is a little bit less certain. Um, but to your question, remind me again what it was. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, was about the, it was about the culture and the performance of the property yes, and kind of right. Right. It, it's so, delving into whether that's, you know, sort of the staff related or perhaps something else, you know? Yes. So that's, that's a gray area. And that's something that is going to be totally case by case basis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the big factors is how, you know, have you worked on other properties with this manager? Have you had other problems and how have those problems been solved? Mm -hmm. um, you know, was it that the property, you know, was it a submarket issue? Was it an onsite issue? Mm -hmm. um, and you're just going to base it off past experience. If you're brand new, mm -hmm. it's going to be tough. You're going to have to have um, conversations with the corporate office, with mm -hmm. the managers, with the regionals, um, and also have it with the onsite staff and just have a frank conversation and say, Hey guys, we all know, you know, nobody's, you know, everybody sees it. We know it's not going well. Why do we think the problem is? Mm -hmm. I would be shocked if the onsite says it's their fault. So they're going to give you other reasons. Mm -hmm. Then you have a conversation with your regional. If they have one, you have a conversation with, you know, the manager overseeing everything and you just kind of get a feeling for what they say. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you're just going to have to make a choice. Um, you know, we have switched on-site managers and things haven't changed and mm -hmm. we've switched on-site managers and it was night and day. Um, mm -hmm. so a lot of it will be based on, you know, we have bi-weekly calls with our managers. So mm -hmm. our on-sites will be on the calls. The corporate office will be on the calls. We'll be on the calls and you know, you start to form a relationship with the on-site and you get a feeling for them. Do you think they're doing a good job? Do you think they're doing a bad job? Mm -hmm. And that will factor in too. So it's so tough to say it's mm -hmm. going to be case by case. And then eventually you've just got to make a decision. Sure. And the quicker you can make that decision, the quicker you will know if that's the solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. So if you're like, Hey, there's a problem. We're sitting at 80% occupied. We can't get over 90. It's just not working. And mm -hmm. you're like, I don't know if it's our rates. I don't know if we're not doing good enough job leasing. I don't know if it's our onsite. I don't know if the management company is just not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. The quicker you make that decision and change it, if that's not it, the quicker you're going to know. So if you change the onsite and it doesn't change a thing, well, maybe the new onsite you brought in is also not good. Or sure. maybe that wasn't the problem. <laughs> if you drop rates, by 10% and that doesn't change anything in a couple of weeks, you know, you probably know it's not the race. It's probably sure. something else. Sure. sure. Um, but if you take, if you know there's a problem and you take two months versus two weeks, mm -hmm. you're just delaying that process. So analyze it, but eventually you've got to make a decision. And once you make a decision, you've got to act. The quicker you act, the quicker you decide, mm -hmm. the quicker you're going to find out whether it solved the problem or not. Nobody's ever going to know for sure unless it's really that obvious if you're trying to, you know, if you're the top of the market rent and you're just trying to continue to bump it up and up and set the new high, well, it might be that that might be the first thing to try. So, you know, that's how I look at it. If you're worried that, Hey, maybe, you know, I don't want to fire somebody, you know, I don't want to fire the management company, you know, do something else first. If that's, you know, I don't want to do that, but I will tell you, like I said, we've fired on site we've fired our, you know, management companies. So it does happen. If you do it long enough, it probably will happen to you as well. Sure, sure, sure. Now, now let's talk briefly about, you know, sort of the renovation, studying the comps uh, and, you know, sort of uh, figuring out whether some of those, uh, you know, sort of the rent premiums that you are looking, are they achievable or not, right? So could you maybe share your sort of thought process or perhaps your methodology about like, let's say if you're looking at the deals and seeing some of the comps, okay, they have achieved some higher rents and things like that. Or sometimes you get deals where you see that, Hey, you know what, given what the comps are, this property is performing great. 
and the operating memorandum may say that hey you may be able to still achieve uh, you know eighty dollars hundred dollars rent premium but when you kind of look at it and you kind of say that hey that perhaps this property is already performing to the to its uh, maximum ability and it may not make sense for you to go in could you maybe kind of talk about some of those uh, aspects and kind of what your uh, thinking is around these things Yes. I think one of the most important things when you are running rental and sale comps is if you are going to base it solely on the online presence, you are going to lose. Um, many properties look much better than they do online than in person. Um, sure. When mm -hmm. we do a photo shoot, it is a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. We prep it weeks in advance. We make it look as good as we can. Sure. We take photos of a brand new unit that has just been renovated and we throw it up online. Sure. We'll also, do, we do little things like on our pictures, if the grass isn't perfect, they'll Photoshop it to make the grass look nicer. They do little things like that. They play with the lighting. You know, they make it look as best as it possibly can. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've looked at a property online. I go, wow, they're doing some really nice renovations. That looks nice. And then I go check it out and it's like one section of the property looks like that and the rest looks totally different or mm -hmm. it's just not being kept up as well as the picture show. It's dirty. Mm -hmm. um, there's trash in places. People have things out on the porches. Um, so a lot of that stuff can happen as well mm -hmm. or, you know, the paint gets old. Um, so when you are doing these comps, at some point you have to get out and physically see them. You mm -hmm. have to drive them. You have to go into units. You have to see units. You have to talk to the on-site managers. You have to drive all around the property. Mm -hmm. um, you also have to drive the areas immediately outside because there's also things too when you're on a property that are somewhat intangible. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how does it feel? You know, are the buildings very cramped and feel like they're looming over you, or is it very sure. spread out and spacious? Mm -hmm. um, you know, are there a lot of trees so there's a lot of leaves on the ground, um, or is there a lot of open space and a lot of sunlight? Um, you know, are the parking spaces very tight? Um, you know, does it feel like there's a lot of people around who, you know, just doesn't feel safe or it's not bright? Um, sure. I would also shop a lot of things at night. Um, mm -hmm. Any property you're buying or looking to buy, not only should you go tour or drive through it during the day, you should go tour, you should drive through it at night or at least when it's getting dark out mm -hmm. so you can see what it's like at night. Is it brightly lit? Does it feel safe? Um, what does the area feel like, et cetera? Um, so there's a lot of things you have to do, but going in person, you, in my opinion, is a must, you have to do it. Sure. And, and then as you study the comps and see the interiors, that is how you position your, uh, sort of your upcoming uh, value add and things like that. Meaning, you know, whether you are doing, let's say the exterior updates or perhaps any interior renovations and things like that, is that kind of a, uh, a blueprint around that as well? Yes. Yeah, so we'll, you know, We'll base it on things we've done on other properties as well as what other people are doing in the market mm -hmm. and submarket. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And, you know, we steal from people all the time with different ideas on, on colors, on style, on layout, on quality, on the level of renovation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not an overly creative person. Sure. I'm not the type of person that can walk into a vacant property. And I struggled with this, a vacant house and imagine the kitchen here and this wall being taken down and stuff. That's not me. I don't have that mind. Mm -hmm. So we look at other properties and say, Hey, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Sure. What mm -hmm. do we like? What do we don't like? What does this property need? What would this property benefit from? Mm -hmm. And what do we think that will lead to? Um, you know, so do we need to trim back trees? Do we need to do better landscaping? Do we need to paint the exterior? Does it need new roofs? Does it need new doors? Does it need brighter colors? Mm -hmm. Um, things like that. And, you know, one thing I'll also say is when you are looking to renovate a property, especially mm -hmm. if you're going to do a slightly heavier, if you're just coming in and you're changing appliances and flooring, it doesn't really need it. Sure. But if you're going to come in, you're going to do cabinets, counters, flooring, lights, and you're really going to try to raise rents, you have to start from the exterior and work your way in because mm -hmm. a lot of your traffic will come from drive-by and people get a feeling when they first drive onto your property, sure. your first impression. If your outside does not match your inside, you're going to lose people at the door. Um, and we've made that error, but mm -hmm. 
typically we tend to start the exterior first mm-hmm. and try to do it ver- as quickly as we can. We will start the interior while we're doing that, but we also realize the first interiors we do may not rent as high as our future interior units because that exterior work has not been done. Sure. Mm-hmm. More that it needs an exterior work, the more it's going to impact your rates. Um, so if you are planning on taking a classic 1970s built unit that has had nothing done to it in 50 years, mm-hmm. you better update the outside because if you're going to be putting in granite and stainless steel, it does no good if nobody's coming inside. Outside right? looks like crap. Yeah. So um, you got to make sure your exterior matches your interior to a certain degree and you got to start that early because it will affect the premiums you can get for Incredible, incredible. Thank you, Chris. It's such great advice. I think as, uh, you know, experienced as you are, and I think some of your thought process, it's just wonderful to see. And one last question, Chris, that uh, as you have networked with several, uh, you know, let's say uh, fellow, uh, you know, investors, your partners and things like that, right? What is some of your uh, best advice uh, that you can share with listeners uh, that you kind of follow or try to, uh, you know, sort of always uh, keep it in mind as you do your everyday activities? What What are some of your, your ninja tricks, if I may ask you? Small actions every day lead to large results. It's mm-hmm. something that I am working on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not do a good job of it, but I know the value in it. And every time I continue to implement it, it does tremendous things. So one thing I'm working on doing right now uh, is reaching out to two to three people a day just to network. Get on the phone, 15 minutes, do an introduction. And if I do that, two people a day, every single day, I will have reached out to over 700 people that I would not have reached out to in a year from now. If you said to reach out to 700 people, you would probably think that's a very large task. But if you just do two a day, it works. So for me, that's the biggest thing that I've seen and it's the biggest thing I see in people that are very successful is they do that. Um, I also think other people that do very well um, are very good at time management, uh, Mm -hmm. time blocking. I think that's good. Um, And I think one of the best things for I'll say newer people that Mm -hmm. are looking to get invested um, is I think, you know, just get involved earlier get involved in little ways um, that you're comfortable with I think a lot of people I talk to or some people I talk to not a lot think they've got to be to a certain level to get started Mm -hmm. you know we just went and started but I surrounded myself with other people Mm -hmm. that could fill the holes and fill the weaknesses that I have Mm -hmm. and as I am able to shore those up and you know make them less so um, you know I continue to have other weaknesses that I surround myself with that I lean on other people. So just because you don't know anything yet, or you think you don't know anything yet, or there's things that you don't know, there are plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of other people you can work with, uh, partner with, hire, um, work for that will take care of those issues and allow you to get started. So um, don't wait too long to get started. Taking awesome. COVID out of the equation because sure, I sure. can throw a hiccup into what you're going to do. Sure, sure. And, and someone's uh, who's interested into like, let's say expanding their network of things. What are some of the ways you are finding those new people? Is that like mostly through your meetup or what, what would be some of the ways uh, you uh, maybe perhaps do that or keep track of those things? Are there any systems resources around that? Yeah, I think, I think what you need to do is reverse engineer who you're looking to connect with. So mm-hmm. for me right now, I'm trying to connect with other people in the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. people that are active investors, uh, brokers, things like that. Where do professionals live? They live on LinkedIn. So I am constantly on LinkedIn every single morning connecting with people and then just sending them a private message. And I just have, we use a a task software called monday.com, which I would recommend to anybody. Mm -hmm. We use it for many things. One of the things that I've been doing is just keeping a list of people I've reached out to Mm -hmm. um, and making sure I stay up to date with some of them um, Mm -hmm. and seeing, you know, just, if I connect with them, great. Check in a week. Are we now, you know, a connection? If we are, some send them a message. Um, and then if I hear back from them, and then just you know, create that 
pipeline for connections. And, you know, I'm not asking for anything from anyone. I'm not trying to pitch anybody on anything, mm -hmm. just looking to grow my network. Um, but if you are looking to connect with other people for different things, I would try to be thoughtful and say, okay, if I am looking for this type of person, mm -hmm. where are they? How do I sure. get in touch with them? Mm -hmm. Go do that. So if it's people in real estate, LinkedIn's a great thing. Um, awesome. You know, mm -hmm. Just reverse engineer. Good, good. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure uh, knowing your experience, your thought process, how methodical you are. It is a delight to, uh, you know, listen to you. Uh, thank you for sharing all your experience. Uh, kindly share with our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your company and everything. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, if people want to go check out the company, it is tororep.com, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. If anybody is interested in investing with us, there's an investor questionnaire on there. Uh, just click it, fill your information out, someone will get in touch with you. Um, if you want to just get in touch with me, uh, you can email me, chris at tororep.com. You can find me on basically every social media platform. Just search Chris Grenzig. Um, and we also have a podcast too. Uh, it's called The Real Estate Investing Experience. Uh, we're on YouTube, all the different podcast platforms. So um, if you're curious to hear more from us or guests, um, you know, you can check us out there. Incredible. So Chris with uh, Real Estate, uh, Toro Real Estate Partners, their podcast. Uh, uh, what was that name again, uh, Chris? The Real Estate Investing Experience. The Real Estate Investing Experience uh, for viewers and listeners. Do check that out. Uh, great guests. Uh, their partners are knowledgeable too. So it's a great company. And all around advice that uh, he just shared is incredible to listen to. So thank you for coming on, Chris. I greatly appreciate it for viewers and listeners. Uh, if you're interested in any of the new stats, media, and of course, we uh, this podcast as well. So we have all of that on premiumcashflow.com. Uh, if you're interested in any of the investment avenues, uh, kindly send a message uh, through us and we can maybe jump on a short phone call and figure out if there is alignment and if we could help each other. So uh, thank you to you, Chris, and thank you to viewers and listeners who are listening. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on, Chris. Same here. Thanks, bud. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. Music